I have a 1927 article about sovereignty and property by Morris Raphael Cohen. Wow, that's the sure kind of thing that it. they've got to send in a brown paper bag. Hello and welcome back. It's episode 128 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast. And we are coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and Yu School of Law, where on this Christmas, as on all before, we continue to defend right-to-work laws at the North Pole. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and composer of the Cars for Kids jingle. And I am joined, as always, by the Comet and Blitzen of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Well, fellas, welcome. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. I'm tempted to invoke Boxing Day just to trigger John. Oh, um, to 26. <laughs> Oh, for I, Christ's sake. <laughs> well, do, I need I, the per, do I need the permission of some lord or milady to do boxing thing? No, 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 no. It's you, a very you nice two, thing. You two monarchists. No, no, no. Look, boxing Day has nothing to do with the English monarchy. Well, listen, I mean, I am I am looking at the window right now at a blanket of new fallen snow here in Connecticut. It's hard not to get in the spirit of the season. Also, in Connecticut, it helps to conceal the malaise. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about you guys and the holidays that I don't think we've ever discussed the pet peeve of, of a certain strain of economists, which is that Christmas is deeply inefficient. It's a master class in what economists call deadweight loss. And Richard, I should probably let you translate the theory here. But do, do you have any sympathy for this kind of Scrooge McDuck argument that you tend to get from economists around Christmas time? Well, I mean, it explains why it is that constitution that economists tend to be very weak on institutional nuance and background behavior. Uh, for those of you in the audience who are forced, fortunate enough never to have heard this expression, the idea of deadweight loss is associated both with taxation on the one hand and monopoly on the other, because what both of them do is they raise the price above the competitive level. And in one case, what happens is an implicit transfer of wealth from the uh, public to the monopolist. In the other case, a rather explicit transfer of wealth uh, from the public to the tax party. And so if the only thing that you had was a situation in which money came out of one pocket to another pocket, economists would only be able to talk about the distributional equity of whom we would rather have the dollars. Uh, but in addition to this, it turns out that some transactions that otherwise would have taken place if the monopoly or the tax were absent do not take place. And it's the loss of mutual gain from both of the parties to those transactions, which commonly goes under the name of deadweight loss. Now, the reason the economists actually want to use that in this particular situation is slightly different. Uh, what they're doing is they note that in Christmas, you do not make efficient gifts of cash in the most cases. What you do is you have the vulgar taste of giving people presents. And when you give preference at presents, their argument is uh, that the cash would always allow the person to buy the present that he or she wants. And if you give them the present, what happens is if you pick the wrong present, there's either a return, which is costly, or there's less than maximal satisfaction with the wealth. Um, this is what we call a brain-dead economist, because for most people, the reason that you're doing all this stuff is you're not only giving them a present, what you're doing is you're giving them an affirmation about how I care for you. And if you sit down and you write a check to somebody in two seconds, that's not caring. Caring essentially requires that you make some kind of an investment to do the 
following. One, to pick out a gift which seems to be sensible. And two, to know enough about the person to whom it's being given uh, that the gift will in fact resonate with a squeal of delight. Christmas is not a holiday that is supported by state fiat and it is never run, as far as I can tell, in violation of the antitrust law. So if the habit continues to go and if it's repeated for birthdays and for Thanksgiving uh, and for all sorts of other holidays, it turns out that the indirect sources of gain have to be large enough to overcome the other transactional inconveniences. And so what you do is you say, this is a classic case in which you invoke laissez-faire. Uh, let the people do it in the way in which they survive. And the whole thing is just suffused with that. Going shopping is, to me, a deadly burden. Uh, but to my wife and to my grandchildren and to my daughter and so forth, it's an occasion to get together to bond, to buy things together, to eat dinner out and all the rest of this stuff. And, you know, I am not going to stop them. If they want to do that, and I'm going to sit down and read some boring tome, we're all the better off, and then we meet for lunch. So, no, I will stop this I, discussion right here, because I think the answer is, this is bad institutional economics. I feel pretty confident that John would pass on the affirmation and go straight to the check. Before John, we well, to- John doesn't have children. John? <laughs> Well, there there are bigger issues in John's life right now, which is the other thing I want to mention before we get to what's going on in Washington, because there is a piece of news so disturbing that I think it'd be weird if we didn't address it. There was a piece a week or two ago in Bloomberg noting that flame-seared meat may soon be a thing of the past in John Yu's home of Berkeley, California, because Berkeley was the first city in the nation to prohibit new natural gas hookups. And the restaurants are saying, look, this really limits our menu. Like, we're not going to be able to, to make these things anymore. By the way, and I say this as a Californian born and raised, it is peak California to cut off, cut off natural gas at the same time that you're intermittently shutting off electricity. It, it, John, if, if your single-issue city council candidacy is ever going to happen, that this is the moment, the prohibition on flame-grilled meat in Berkeley. Uh, I mean, it's all part of the left's desire to drive us back to the pre-industrial age because it doesn't prohibit the right to burn meat. I mean, it just prohibits natural gas. So what are you going to do? You're going to have a campfire, which actually causes more pollution. I mean, these chefs here, they're just going to start their own little fires in their backyard, which is not prohibited. And so you'll get more pollution in the end than when you started. But I want to go back to this idea of gifts, because I disagree with Richard, because he's talking about little checks. What if someone gave you a big check with lots of zeros? I'd rather prefer, I'd prefer to get that instead of some kind of physical gift. I mean, are you crazy? Come on. John, what happens is, again, you're missing the ceremony. They said Christmas. Everybody who's involved in estate planning understands that the last thing you do when you're trying to get under the perdono or perdoni uh, limitation is to start giving cash. But on the other hand, it is perfectly sensible to give appreciated stock uh, uh, to people so as to avoid the liquidity crunch that happens with it. But I agree. That's why it takes institutional nuance. One has to understand the small ceremonial situation See, also- from the general estate. State Richard, you, you made a mistake. This is a difference between um, Asian and Jewish cultures, maybe. You said write a check. The Asian would take, say you want to give someone $200, you would take $201 bills and stuff them in a little <laughs> red envelope and then give it to them. Much more pleasurable than getting a check. Come on. Wait, and then you have to have them counted when you deposit. That's all part of the fun. Well, you see, that's exactly the point. Well, that's, now that's a Merry present. Christmas. 
So you're basically <laughs> arguing in-kind joys of stuffing envelopes filled with $1 bills is somehow rather wholesome, but having somebody rip open a package and defining a Troy train set inside that is just what he or she wanted, because uh, that turns out to be a dead weight no kid wants a train set. They want a video game. Well, so you we'll take the that. money and they'll buy a video game, which they will download off the internet, which you could never get them because you wouldn't know how to do it. Uh, and I, no, I, <laughs> See? I, do, I do know how to do it. But I, right. I get All my right. grandchildren to buy the present for the other and then reverse it back and forth. The answer is I can go to agency to get this thing stuff. I do not have to do it uh, personally to make this happen. And not only that, I have the best agents in the world for all of this stuff. You're my my wife is a past master genius at figuring out how to do not Christmas presents, but Hanukkah presents. And for Hanukkah, sometimes you think in eight days, right? So this is a much more difficult challenge. And John, uh, there's no Asian tradition on Hanukkah. Is there or is there? Perhaps I'm missing We're working something. Toward, I'm working to introduce that because then you could give a $10 bill every day for eight days in a row. That would be awesome. All right, fellas, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to call this right here because there's just nowhere to go from this. Um, getting Downhill. serious, we're getting serious. We know where we have to start. So yesterday, day before recording this, the House formally announced articles of impeachment against the president: two counts, abuse of power, and obstruction of Congress. But we can get into the strategy behind that in a moment. But let's just start with these charges on the merits. John, how strong a case do Democrats have on either of those fronts? And how much does it vary between the two? Well, I think that they're, they have an okay case on the law as to the first charge, which is a charge about misuse of the foreign affairs power. They have, I think, very weak case on the law with regard to obstruction. But the problem is that the facts just don't rise to the standards you would want to prove. So let's take the foreign affairs power one. I think the original evidence from the framing, and I was very happy to see all my liberal colleagues in the law professoriate going to testify, expounding on how brilliant the founders were and talking about the framers when they would never, ever turn to the original understanding to do anything when interpreting gun rights, abortion, or so on. But suddenly they all rush back to the framing. If you look at the framing evidence, they do talk about uh, impeaching a president for treason, bribery, or other high crime and misdemeanor who misused their foreign affairs power for to receive a personal benefit. Uh, the example they often gave was uh, Louis the Fourteenth of France paying off King Charles II of England. So King Charles II wouldn't send the British army into the wars on the continent, paid him a lot of money every year to do that. But I don't think the facts here prove that out. Uh, one thing is I think the constitutional text says right, treason, bribery, or other high crime and misdemeanor. So it means that any abuse of power has to be serious, as serious as level as treason or bribery. And here, because the House rushed through its investigation so fast, didn't hear from any uh, witnesses like Pence, Pompeo, or Bolton, who actually would have talked to Trump to divine what his state of mind is. I don't think that they have sufficient facts to even come close to proving a serious abuse of power. And then my second point is, I think all of it should be settled by the elections anyway. I think the founders thought elections would be the main uh, check on presidential abuse of power. We're in an election year. Why waste all the country's time uh, when you can't even get uh, a definitive set of facts? So I, I think the House Democrats have 
uh, really wasted the country's time and they've rushed this forward on a political schedule, not really a legal or investigatory schedule. And that's why I expect the Senate, uh, fully expect the Senate to acquit Trump and not even come close to convicting. Richard, there there were a number of charges that Democrats toyed with, but that didn't make the final cut yes. here. And I commend to our listeners the dissection of these by our friend Josh Blackman in The Atlantic. Uh, Josh lists three charges that were considered but not ultimately employed. Violations of the emoluments clause. Yes. Uh, obstruction of justice based on some of the details in the Mueller report. Okay, yeah. And bribery. So grade this out for us, the two that made it in, the three that didn't. Did the Democrats play their strongest cards here? The only strong card that they have, the only credible card they have is the first one, which is abuse of power, which I think is quite weak if you give a charitable reading or even a sensible reading uh, to the conversation that was had. Uh, the charge with respect to refusing to acknowledge what Congress wants in terms of uh, stonewalling them, this is crazy. And the reason it is, at this particular point, that it is only a dispute between the Congress and the president. And the president is known by everybody to have at least some privileges, executive privilege, absolute in some cases, and arguably a privilege in certain other cases to say that you cannot begin various kinds of litigation until he's out of office, at least in a serious way. That is, you may be able to file a complaint, but you can't compel him to answer, to give depositions and so forth. That's a trickier one. Well, they're mainly going after the first thing. And there was this huge battle in the District of Columbia about whether or not the committee could get the tax returns from uh, Trump's account. And it was 2-1 in favor of uh, the government saying that they, the House saying they could get it over strong dissent by Naomi Rao. And this was promptly stayed by Justice Roberts, which means it's surely going up to the Supreme Court. And so you're going to run an impeachment and you're going to run it when it may turn out that they will argue that the investigative power of the House is not strong enough, given its motive, to deal with this thing. And how could you start to impeach a president if, in fact, his position becomes vindicated by the United States Supreme Court? And all of these privileges are extremely difficult to understand. But I think the minimum condition that you would have to do in order to establish a uh, conviction is to show that there was a court order requiring this to be done, which the Trump administration defied. Um, and that is not part of the situation. On the first thing having to do with the uh, situation on what we did, uh, there are two ways to look at it. And I think both of them come up short. One is, I cannot tell you the number of times I've read the particular conversation with Zelensky and so forth. And, you know, it is not, shall we say, Trump's finest diplomatic moment, uh, but I do not see anything in there uh, which uh, lends itself to the paraphrase that is so often given by left-wing critics, namely that what he did is he asked him uh, to dig up dirt, quote-unquote, on Biden as if it were an undifferentiated requirement. Uh, what he did do is he said he was kind of taken aback by the situation with that, and he said it would be nice if you could find out something about it, uh, maybe, which, by the way, uh, doesn't strike me, given the foreign affairs power, to be illegitimate. Uh, I think, in effect, trying to figure out whether or not there's been some previous impediment to uh, Ukraine-American relationships under the uh, previous administration of Obama through Biden is illegitimate legitimate question. Uh, they didn't mention the 2016 or the 2020 election. You can infer that, I suppose, if you want to. Uh, but I think the real difficulty that they have is that 
you have to essentially make huge inferences about what's going on in these conversations, uh, which are not supported by the background information. So, for example, there's no allegation that Zelensky actually knew of the decision that had been made, if it had been made, on whether or not to send aid or whether or not to postpone that. And so it's very hard to coerce somebody who doesn't know exactly what the threat is because he's not up on the issue. It's also clear that the transcript was made by independent parties when there are 15 to 20 people in a room. It doesn't sound like that's the setting in which you're really trying to do this. And it's also the case, I think, that frankly, anybody who's serious about this should be utterly appalled that Biden had the bad judgment to do this. And if he has the bad judgment to do it, then if the only thing you're asking is about that, not about everything else, it's hard to treat this as though it's a fishing expedition. So what you have to do is then go to a broader context to get this charges. And to say, well, there's this entire pattern and practice of history going on for months before and months after. But once you do that, it becomes very difficult to identify what it is uh, that is the criminal moment. You're going to have to evaluate an entire record. And as John mentioned, nobody's really gone through this record. Uh, you've got Sunland's testimony. First, he says, I don't remember anything about a quid pro quo. Then he changes his mind. You really want to put forward a witness who is making a prior inconsistent statement? Do you want to do it when the person with whom we were supposed to be talking has flatly denied that this kind of conversation is done, not under oath? Um, do you have the power to call these people as witnesses? This is going to be a nightmare of impeachment if you use on this grand theory, because you're going to have to have all sorts of fact witnesses. And we've never run an impeachment which looks as though it's a trial. We've always run impeachment on the basis of situations that were known and admitted and then try to draw the legal inferences. So I think that one's going to be very hard. I cannot conceive that the Democrats will get any Republicans to go along with it. I think there may be some Democratic defections in the House. Uh, so that's not winning. The other ones that you mentioned, the Mueller thing, he says, I don't know what's really going on here, but I have a very strong reaction to this. I think the worst kind of obstruction of justice charges you could make are when you try to entrap a witness into doing one thing or another. And there's a, certainly a lot of that associated with Flynn. And, you know, what you do is you get Trump saying, I say, I want to get rid of this guy, which he's entitled to do. I just don't see that coming up. And I think any effort on the part of the Democrats to go back to the fiasco that were the Mueller hearings uh, would be crazy. The poor man uh, had no idea what his own report had said and has kind of disappeared, thank heavens, into the mist because he was utterly incompetent on the particular day and he'll never be able to recover that. So I think that's gone. The emolument stuff, look, this is extremely complicated. There are two emoluments clauses, one of which refers to the president, that's the domestic one, and one which does not. So first you have to figure out whether or not he's going to be covered. And then you have to figure out exactly what it is that is going on under this particular situation. So I don't think that there's there. And there was one other that you mentioned. What was that one, Troy? No, I think you got all of them now, right? <laughs> I do. I think you got something you didn't even know about. I mean, <laughs> look. All right, Philip, you have to forgive me for using Twitter as a resource, but I'd like to get you guys to react to a tweet yesterday from um, Gabriel Maylor, and apologies if I'm pronouncing that last name incorrectly. I've never actually heard it pronounced, but he's a conservative lawyer and, and writer, good Twitter follow. And here's what he tweeted yesterday. There's a real danger that if the Senate does not convict on the obstruction of Congress count, congressional subpoenas will be forever unenforceable. If Congress itself rules that defiance of congressional subpoenas is no error, how could the courts in any future litigation close quote? John, is that a worthwhile concern? No, it's wrong. 
<laughs> you don't have to worry about mispronouncing his name because I never heard of him or his name. I don't. I, this is. I think it's just wrong. So it, it really depends on what privilege or right the executive branch is claiming against the congressional right to investigation and oversight. This is also laid out in the Watergate tapes case and in the lower court cases that came after. So uh, no matter what happens here with the impeachment and the subpoenas that went out, all the usual subpoenas that are involved with congressional oversight are still good, and you're still going to go through the whole process of the executive branch and the legislative branch fighting it out. Usually, the legislative branch wins in the end, you know, before you get even get to the courts. And you know, usually, the executive branch ends up handing over most everything that Congress wants. It's just a question of uh, how much. Congress has to do to force the executive branch to hand it over. The one interesting question here is this is, and this is the, uh, I think the root of the obstruction issue. And that's why I think the House is just mistaken because they rushed all this is there wasn't even enough time for the executive branch and Congress to negotiate over whether Bolton was going to appear, what conditions he would appear under, what kind of privileges he could or could not claim, what documents we hand over. Presidents always start this negotiation out by claiming I'm not handing anything over. And Congress always starts it out by saying, we get a right to everything. And having worked on both sides, the House, I mean, on the Congress and the president's side on executive privilege, there then is a normal process of negotiation and fighting. Uh, this was all short-circuited by the House's artificial timeline to finish the whole investigation basically in a month and have the articles done in a month. The really interesting constitutional question is that uh, you know Nixon tells us Nixon versus United States tells us that when you resolve these issues, there it was a judiciary's need to have the evidence to give the Watergate burglars a fair trial versus the executive branch's interest that wasn't involving national security or military law enforcement, just a general right to have confidential conversations within the executive branch. And there the court and Nixon said. Uh, the balance of interests is on the side of the judiciary. Here we have a completely different set of issues. On the one hand, we have Congress's right to conduct an impeachment inquiry, which has never been adjudicated before. So we don't know how weighty that is. I assume it's extremely weighty. But on the president's side, you clearly have discussions about national security and foreign policy directly with the president which the Nixon court said might be absolute. I mean, those are the highest forms of communication to be protected by executive privilege. So for the Congress to say that not handing over the information is clearly unconstitutional is just flat wrong uh, because they can't point to any court decision that says that. This has never been adjudicated. And my last thing is I would actually expect the courts not to want to decide this because the courts in other cases have said impeachment is a political question that's not up for judicial review. So I wouldn't I wouldn't the I would not be surprised if the court said if there's a fight over subpoenas and impeachment, the two branches work it out, we're not gonna get involved. I agree with that. I think, in fact, as I mentioned earlier, that this is supposed to be an impeachment hearing, but it's going to be a trial of facts. So here's my first thing. First of all, you're going to get the president in there, and he's going to come. We don't know who the judge is, whether it's Roberts alone who does this or 101 people who do it together, like Dalmatians, I suppose. And they said, we move for a directed verdict on the grounds that there's nothing here which rises to the dignity of a high crime and misdemeanor. And so we're not going to even have any testimony or argument one way or the other except on this directed verdict motion. Is this going to be something you could do? 
Well, we know that. But in fact, suppose the Trump administration does have an interest. I mean, I could easily conceive of this. Now you're going to get a majority of the Republican senators joining the Democrats saying we don't want this to come on. Yeah, we don't want witnesses. I don't understand. I mean, I don't even understand what the tactics are. Uh, But I do know the following point will weigh heavily, at least on some of the Republicans, which is that Schiff in this ostensible quasi-grand jury proceeding has always leaked the information that he finds desirable and has never let out the information that he finds undesirable. And now when you go to the basically the hearing, uh, there's equal control. The House is the prosecutor. The president is the defense. And he says, look, I want, in effect, my name to be cleared. And I think that I'm entitled to get some of the evidence that he suppressed on the record. So let me just even put it another way. Forget about witnesses. Can somebody say, I think that the Senate ought, in order to make its final decision, have access to the full record of the testimony of the House, including that which was systematically suppressed by um, uh, Adam Schiff? I think that motion I would vote yes for. What would you vote, John? Um, oh, none of us are trying to Oh, no, I agree. I, I agree. So I think what happened in the Clinton impeachment is that, and this is different. The reason why it's there's two things is different. One is, right, there is no a new package of rules yet. That's still to come. But the really big difference, and this is what Richard's point is getting to, is in the past two impeachments, in Clinton and Nixon, there was a special counsel who did all the investigating. And that special counsel transmitted all that information so that the Congress could look at it. Here, it's different because there was never any prosecutor like Ken Starr around or uh, you know Jaworski or, or you know Archibald Cox around. The House actually did the investigation, and it was utterly one-sided and partisan. So you're quite right. There is a defective record. Now, uh, so you could say we should have a Senate process that allows the president to produce evidence and so on. The problem is – I normally would agree with you if this were a legal process, but it's a political process. If you're a Republican senator, that's a real big gamble that you're taking to allow – and more opened up trial procedure. You know, say you're Mitch McConnell, you know that if you keep the old bare bones rules with just oral arguments and no cross-examination, no witnesses, Trump will get acquitted because you're not going to have 20 senators, Republican senators switch to convict. So why take the risk of opening up into this crazy wild process that God knows what Trump would do? Plus, as we've learned with Trump, God knows what new scandals will happen, right? This this Ukraine call happened like two days after the Mueller report was over. Right? Like, so if you're, <laughs> I, I have no question that that open-ended process where you don't know where Trump could freelance, God knows what. Well, that I mean, but you know, one of the things that you have to really ask is the man is sufficiently angry. He just doesn't want victory. He wants vindication and humiliation for the other side. Uh, he is not known to be the most dispassionate person. And it may well be, by the way, that may be true with respect to the witnesses. I have a brilliant set of bad ideas one after another. Well, but I got one of the things come up, at the end, well, the question, the end of the segment, we the, should come up the, with the a question, list of- Yeah, the question is suppose. The Senate now admits a request to the House. We have been asked to uh, have you submit the full record to us. And we're not quite sure we're going to make it public, but we'd like to see it. 
And it turns out, suppose the House says we're not going to do it. Can a Republican member of the House saying, well, if you've asked for it, we can send it to you. Then they can start looking at that. And at this particular point, the risk to them goes way down because they can decide what they want to let out, cherry pick or not cherry pick um, on this kind of thing. And it may turn out that this may be really decisive because the Democrat prosecutors are going to make X. And it turns out to be records in the hearings that were done privately that were suppressed that say not X. And at this particular point, somebody might say, well, it's getting a little bit shaky. We'd like to get both sides on this thing. I mean, I regard this thing as a potentially of exploding. I agree with John that the most likely situation is that the Republicans will sit on a lead and that the Democrats will not try and go for a knockout punch because I think what they wanted to do was to get the impeachment on the record. I think they're actually somewhat diffident about the conviction. If they get a conviction and he's removed, which I think is under 1% chance, then they have to run against Pence, who doesn't have some of the Trump baggage. And the Trump electorate is going to be absolutely fired up under these circumstances. And given the sort of rather, shall we say, undistinguished or unimpressive list of potential Democratic nominees in the eyes of the public, um, I think, in effect, that Pence would probably cruise to victory. I and think you're Pence- selling John Delaney way too short. I've got, <laughs> I've got, I've got to move us on, guys, because who's, who's actually, John Delaney? He's, he's you're making these, my point for me. You are making my point for yeah, me. Yeah, he, he's one of these non-facial Democrats. That's he's, he's, former, he's, former congressman from uh, from Maryland, po- he's, polling he's at polling not point than Bill Weld. I have to move you guys on. To the the okay, other big story this week has been the release of the report from the Justice Department's Inspector General looking into the conduct of the Crossfire Hurricane <laughs> investigation, which was the name given to their probe for the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. Which, between Crossfire Hurricane and Little Rocket Man, there's been a great time for classic rock in the federal government. So the conclusions <laughs> of the report don't fully satisfy devout partisans of, of either stripe. The uh, Inspector General said that. The FBI was justified in beginning this investigation, that it wasn't simply driven by partisan motives. Uh, however, there is a chronicle of misdeeds in here with the FBI really misrepresenting the case to the, the FISA court. Uh, John, based on what you've seen here, do you think that's a fair conclusion? So it's interesting. I think that the fundamental question uh, still is open and yet to be decided definitively, uh, which is, was the investigation itself, the launch of it, and really not just the very beginning, but really the effort to make it a serious investigation, to move it from what's called like a preliminary investigation, which could be like a phone call to, you know, devoting serious resources. Was that step infected by partisanship or ideology, improper motives? Now, Horowitz just says in his report, I don't have any testimony or documents that show that's true. But I also wasn't able to talk to anybody outside the Justice Department. So he wasn't able to talk to people in the White House, the Obama White House. He wasn't able to talk to anybody in the intelligence agencies. Uh, And Bill Barr and John Durham, who's the special counsel investigating this criminally, both amazingly, this is unprecedented as far as I can recall, publicly said they disagreed with him on with Horowitz on this conclusion, and they they're both of their views that there was insufficient evidence to start it, and Durham in particular said we have other evidence which we haven't come forward with yet that shows that there might well have been 
uh, partisanship. That's that is the crucial issue. Second point is then Horowitz goes on, as you said, Troy, to show this long litany of mistakes, abuses, improper procedures, mishandling, abuse of the FISA process, use of the Steele dossier to get FISA warrants on this guy Carter Page, uh, misrepresenting to the court who Steele was, where he's getting his information from. You could say, you know, Horowitz could just say, well, you could start this investigation and it's just one of the most slipshod mismanaged investigations in FBI history. Or you could look at that same report and say, that train of mistakes and abuses is so consistent, so deep, that it shows that there was some kind of intent to start the whole thing off with a partisan bias, but the people in charge just didn't write it down. I mean, they're not going to write down on a piece of paper, get Trump. I don't like Trump. He's a Republican. Don't let him win. Let's use this investigation for partisan purposes. Uh, you know, they could have well have just done a wink and a nod uh, and then come up with this flimly, flimsy excuse for an investigation and then abuse the process. So Horowitz provides you all the evidence to have either the – it was just a bungling but unintentionally bad investigation or a malicious investigation that was just – you know, that was pursued in the way it was but wasn't ever written down. The motives were never written down or – and no one would testify to it now. Uh, I don't think that the Horowitz report actually settles which one it was. Um, I think that there's other evidence that does settle that question. There were these conversations with people like Strutz and Lisa Page, um, who said, you know, this is our insurance policy. Uh, some of these people were involved. There was the fact that McCabe, I believe it was, was uh, dismissed uh, before he could collect his pension, which suggested serious forms of impropriety. Uh, and uh, you look at a list like this, it's not as though when you're talking about incompetence, there was the odd error that actually sort of helped Carter Page or anybody else in these circumstances, every last one of these things went in the wrong direction. So put it to you in the other way. If all this information had been presented to the FISA court, is there a chance in hell that they would have given the warrant to continue the search? Oh, not at all. As not someone at who's all. practiced well, before the as someone who's been practiced before the FISA court, there's no way they would have granted a warrant if they actually knew the facts about it. Well, then at this point, it has to be a political case. And look, the other thing is, you know, you can invest other people. Let me sort of give you a suggestion. Um, We know that the uh, Steele report was commissioned by the Democratic National Committee. We also know that Hillary and Clinton is somebody who had an interest in the way in which that committee operated. We also know that she is somebody who exerts strong control over the activities. Suppose, can you take her deposition to see did she or did she not authorize or know of the situation with respect to uh, the Steele dossier? Um, And you could do the same thing with respect to anybody else inside the Justice Department. I mean, I regard this stuff as so incredibly serious that I found it just utterly mysterious that you could draw that final conclusion from the evidence without doing what you'd have to do in my mind, which is say, and oh, by the way, here's the good stuff that they had with respect to Carter Page or anybody else, which does warrant going ahead uh, so that it becomes a value judgment of whether the pluses outweighed the minuses and so forth. But I don't believe there was anything in that report which was a plus factor for the investigation. Um, I think, in effect, that I would have said exactly the same thing that Barr said and Dorham had said. I mean, I'm just utterly amazed and to some extent appalled about this. And I mean, you know, Comey and calls this a vindication, my God. And I think the New York Times used the word, uh, they said that this report debunked 
believed that this was an investigation um, that had no foundation to it. It didn't do that at all. Uh, the conclusion is an inference drawn from admitted facts. This is not something in which they are privileged to say that they can do it. Anybody else can look at those facts and draw the opposite inference. And I have to say that I certainly, under these circumstances, would start to do this. As you know, John, from the very beginning, I've intensely critical of everything that has gone on with respect to the Mueller investigation, with respect to Comey and so forth. I don't read this report as saying, you know, Richard, you have a perverted and suspicious mind that these guys were really on the up and up. Uh, Richard, I think I don't think you have a perverted mind, but you certainly have a suspicious mind. Well, I'm not. Don't sing it. Don't sing it. I think there was objective evidence which required you to be suspicious about this. And of course, the yeah. biggest mistake that Donald Trump made under these circumstances was neutering his own ability to run this case by appointing his own campaign guy, Jeff Sessions, uh, to the attorney general position. That just absolutely drove it. Just imagine how this had gone. If it had started off with Barr on day one. And oh, by the way, go back to his memo that he wrote um, when this thing came up. It was a very powerful memo. It was much stronger than the treacly stuff that came out in the Mueller report. I mean, thing, John, just one other. Oh, go ahead, Troy. Well, I was just going to, you mentioned earlier practicing in front of the FISA court. I mean, it would be probably helpful for our listeners. Could you just sort of walk us through what that process entails. And I'm particularly curious because you have seen in light of this report, a lot of calls for the FISA process itself to be reformed. And I'm curious as to your perspective on whether this is about institutional problems or just the problems with the people at the FBI who are interacting with the FISA court. Oh, it's both. But I think the problem is that the, fi the power of the FISA warrant is so broad uh, that it does give the government a lot of discretion in how to use it. And you know, I was someone who was involved with the reform of the FISA law back right after the 9-11 attacks. You would have thought it was generally understood that you should not use these powers to surveil the presidential campaign of a major political party. Uh, that's where the Obama administration just went off the rails, where Jim Comey went off the rails on this. And you would have thought it would just be sensible and understood that you wouldn't use it for this. So the FISA law is different than the kind of warrants that we uh, generally read about you know, for uh, organized crime or drug cartels. FISA is really a law that's uh, a special electronic surveillance for – it was primarily for foreign spies – for terrorists. That's how it was updated after 9-11. Uh, for people and in institutions that are foreign threats to the national security, they may not actually be committing a crime. We might just be trying to monitor Russians or the Chinese just to find out what they're doing. So because of that, you can go to this special court, the FISA court, which has uh, proceedings in a highly classified, basically a, a room that's enclosed by in a steel tank so no one can surveil it. And only one party, the government, shows up, and it asks for this warrant. It doesn't have to show what's called probable cause that someone's committing criminal activity, which is the standard for a normal warrant. You just have to show probable cause that someone might be involved with or working for a foreign power or a terrorist group, which may not itself be criminal. Uh, it's just uh, – and then if you get one of those – you can follow that person around. You can read all their emails. You can listen to all their phone calls, and no one ever finds out. And so, what I think this is if you take Richard's uh, deepest, darkest suspicions about what happened here, you could say, 
okay, what happened was a combination. The FISA law is too broad, plus the institutional problem is that the FBI was filled with people who didn't want Trump to be president and really believed he was some kind of Russian agent. And so they used as an excuse this loser, grifter guy, Papadopoulos, who he, he doesn't know anything and isn't involved with anybody, you know, getting drunk at a bar, telling some Australian diplomat, oh, the Russians are about to give the Trump campaign emails. And then because of that, you get warrants to surveil everybody you can. <laughs> you know, that I agree with Richard. That does make the intentions of who was involved look very, very bad. Now, the, the downsides I would worry about, I think the solution is not to narrow the FISA law because it is extremely important for national security purposes. The, I think the answer is to clean house at the FBI and get rid of the people that Obama installed there, which is what I think Chris Ray has pretty much done and is doing. I don't think it's a failure of the law, but it's a failure of the people in the institution of the FBI. Well, I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I certainly agree that there should be some degree to surveil people who have not yet been guilty of crimes. Uh, but the system clearly requires that you have some degree of self-restraint that you cannot normally demand of people who are in these prosecutorial positions. So I would sort of want to biff up the standards in some way. So maybe it turns out that you cannot have people um, who are potential targets of these things testify before the FISA court. But I do think it should be possible to say that you were going to appoint a government advocate to argue on the other side about how it is that the claim is too broad and that something in question ought to be narrowed. And I think that those people ought to be insulated from the direct control of uh, the attorney general or any attendant, any people who are starting to work on that case. I also think as another mistake is they, is they give, I think the chief justice is, has the exclusive power to appoint all members of the court. I think that's always a mistake to concentrate that much power in a court that powerful in a single man. And so if you had nine judges on this, I would want each Supreme Court justice to appoint one of them and then uh, to have the nine of them decided. And maybe you're going to do it in panels, at which point you'd want to rotate them. Because I do think that too much concentration is going to be a danger. And I'm worried about the fact that the FISA judges themselves, if not sufficiently cautioned, may regard themselves as in the position where, yes, we really have to go ahead and do this, but who are we to suggest that the president or anybody else is going to do this thing improperly? Um, but, you know, let me put it this way. I actually got a physical contact of the Steele dossier. Have you seen this piece written on yellow paper, fool's cap, John? Anybody who thinks that that doctrine is anything other than a hoax has not read it in its original presented form. I mean, this could have been written on toilet paper for all it was. And what happens is, so you've got this thing. Did anybody on the FISA court actually look at the document? The document, I don't mean look at the summaries of what they said. I mean, just looked at the physical evidence that came across. So I think that there's a real gap on that side as well. And I mean, I regard this as the most serious kinds of situation. And then I compare it with the charges against Trump is that he hinted broadly he'd like to hear somebody tell him what Hunter Biden and his father did with respect to Bursum. I mean, this is one thing is the invocation in a corrupt fashion of the entire legal system. And the other is the president shooting off his mouth um, in a way which may or may not be consistent with the foreign affairs power. And we in 
indict for one for conviction. What we want to do is to basically throw him out of the office. And for the other thing, we can't conclude that there's some justification that the process has gone awry. I do not think that that is credible. I thought that it was an incredible cop-out by Mr. Horowitz uh, to reach that conclusion. And what it did is it gave everybody on the left a real talking point for what is a serious, serious kind of misconduct. And of course, as the Wall Street Journal pointed out in its editorial today, everything that Adam Smith wrote after Darren Nunes wrote his report uh, said that everything was perfectly fine before the Kaiser stuff. Schiff, was, Adam Schiff, right? Adam yeah, Smith, yeah, to yeah, the best no, of our Adam, knowledge, has not involved yeah. himself in that. Although the Adam Smith would be impeached by the House Democrats, too, I mean, for sure. Yeah, I mean, but the, Adam <laughs> I mean, he's a capitalist. I'm willing to, to basically stand corrected on that point, Troy. I make abject apologies to Adam <laughs> Smith, but none to Adam Schiff. But, I mean, everything he wrote was wrong. And this is the main architect of the impeachment stuff. I mean, there's something about this which is deeply, deeply troublesome to have these two events coming on where I think one is 100 times more serious than the other um, because Trump erratic behavior doesn't indicate what we see with the FISA warrants, which is a kind of systematic, long-term institutional corruption. If you recall, what I mentioned is nobody has gone through the first times that the Trump administration thought about what it was going to to do with the weapons request of the uh, Ukrainian government. But we do have exactly that record in all relevant details, and we're going to get even more of it with respect to what had happened in the uh, FISA investigations, and there's not a single redeeming step at the entire process. Uh, so, I mean, I think that if there is no consideration of a criminal prosecution for the people who are involved in this stuff after the second report comes out, that there's, again, just too much forgiveness for what's going on. And I, I would really like to know just how high did all of this stuff go? Did it go to the attorney general at the time that Comey was doing this, to the deputy attorney general, to the president, to the vice president, to the Clinton campaign? Um, if you want to really start doing that kind of investigation on Trump, then you have to do it here. Okay, I am anxiously awaiting all this stuff to be over because it's crowding out all of our normal topics. I've got three, three or four things that we're not going to get to today. So I'm just going to give you guys this one final question. Um, it's not the most important one. It's just the most interesting to me. So there's this young Republican congressman from Florida, Matt Gates, who's sort of come to prominence of late during the impeachment stuff. He is this ridiculous caricature of a human being. He was getting roasted on Twitter the other day because he tweeted, maybe it's a different president we should be impeaching. And people said, well, we've only got one. So, you know, not sure how that would work. And he replied, he said, well, you actually can impeach a former president for what it's worth. And I tip my cap here to, to Keith Whittington, politics professor at Princeton, who wrote about this at the Volokh conspiracy afterwards. And Whittington's argument is, you know, he may actually be right. And it goes like this, the argument that in addition to the power to remove somebody from office, the impeachment power also has the potential to include prohibiting someone from holding future office. And there's no explicit limit to bringing this against current office holders. In fact, he points to the impeachment of William Belknap, who's Grant's secretary of war, after he had already resigned as proof of concept for this. So if you had William Belknap on your Law Talk bingo card, congratulations. Uh, Richard, is this how you read it? Is, is this plausible that this actually is a power that you could use against a former elected official to keep them from future elected office? 
I'm like, you know, I thought about this and I said, well, of course, because in fact, that's what it says. Now, one might have thought that what happens is there's an alternative view, which is when you impeach a sitting president or some other official, you can then also ban them from future office. But you may want to argue that the text says that you can't go after the future unless you go after the past. But I don't see why that necessarily has to be the case. Um, if you think you have people who have engaged in serious kinds of breaches of trust who are not fit to hold public office, uh, stopping them might be an appropriate thing. Uh, politically, I would think that it might be quite suicidal in many cases to even attempt that sort of situation. And so what you'd have to do to see the plausibility is you don't want to do this in connection with uh, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. Uh, you'd want to sort of do it with respect to somebody um, who is in a lower position of one kind or another um, in the 30s or their 40s and say, well, can you really ban them for life after they've been defeated, for example, in a political election? So you take this guy Menendez who won in New Jersey. Um, everybody thought that it stunk to high hell as best I could understand. Suppose he had lost an impeachment hearing on that on the grounds that he had taken favors and corruption of a fairly substantial nature. I don't see why not. Um, I certainly am against doing this in most particular cases. And I have, for the most part, been extremely reluctant to think that one wants to prefer any criminal charges whatsoever against various officials inside the Obama administration. I think I've actually moved more in favor of criminality based upon the particular findings of Horowitz, assuming, which I think will be the case, that there will be augmented that stuff that comes out of the other reports that are going on there. But even that is a very, very tough kind of call on prosecutorial discretion. So let me say to this, I think constitutionally he's right. Politically, we get yet another minefield in which we can go. And John is about to blow me up, so he may have the last words. <laughs> oh. Yeah, John, I feel like oh. you're not going to be implied to as creative an interpretation of this. No, and it just goes uh, from reading the text. So there's two places that are important here. One is Article 1, right, which is, sets out Congress's powers. Section 3 it talks about the Senate's unique powers. And it says the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. That's where the idea that the Senate sets all the rules comes from. And then it says judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to enjoy, to hold and enjoy any office in the future. Right, so that's where this idea comes from. Oh, that maybe uh, it's not removal and disqualification. It's sort of like removal and or disqualification. But I think that's a mistake because you also have to then go to Article 2, the article that sets out the presidency. And Article 2, Section 4 says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for conviction of treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. It doesn't talk about people who are now private citizens but used to be office holders. I think the second provision, Article 2's provision, makes it clear that impeachment has to apply to people who are currently officers of the United States. Because if you read it the other way, right, if you read it the other way, if it was just Article 1, which doesn't actually talk about who gets impeached at all, mind you, they could impeach Troy. The Senate could say Troy Senek shall never be able to hold. Now, 
I may hold up. I mean, it'd be justified. Yeah, I I think that actually the Senate could spend a fair amount of time investigating Troy's various travels around the world. I do too. His his questionable activities. His a lot of trips to Albania. I mean, that's going to Albania, right? Exactly. Now, yeah. I mean, also they could. There's a whole list of people they could probably sit there. George Soros. Bloomberg, why not apply it to people who are running for president who've never been president? You know, it, no, 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 open the floodgates of it being private. No, no, I don't think that was what to was impeachment. It. Then you got to that just shows you that interpretation. can't. Now, be right. look, I mean, John, I, as I said, it's never been done. I'm a believer in history and practice so that I incline to agree with you. But I think that the suggestion that was made was not that one. It's that if, in fact, you had a former official who committed derelictions of duty and then resigned Resigned, those people could be investigated. I do not think that anybody believes that you can investigate Troy Senek for impeachment so as to keep him from public office. And he said I'm the kind wrong of under the now. reading because no, they're already no, a private no, citizen no, now. But he but he said but again what the 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 fellow said was look he said they're impeaching the wrong president. He didn't mean the wrong future president. He meant the wrong past president. He's not and president so, anymore. He's a private citizen. Point, Obama's a private point citizen is, now. He is a private citizen who could be impeached for the work that he did while in office as the president would be the argument. So that all these other cases would drop aside. Now, nobody has done this either way. So, I mean, God knows what will happen. My inclination is I think the argument you made on the second part of the text that the sanctions don't make any sense with people out of office is a pretty strong one. But I think the other argument you made, uh, the horrible one, isn't there. I will defend Troy Senek against any and all impeachments. That's a bad bet. Oh, this is just the holiday season. Yeah, the holiday season is just that. That I will do. Isn't isn't the reasonable compromise here, the thing that I think we could all agree on, is that we just use this Soviet style and we impeach dead presidents, our worst ones, (laughs) just as we bring up Franklin Pierce and just put him in the dock for this. They can't hold future (laughs) office, right? So we don't want to impeach dead presidents. We're Um, just making a point. We're just putting a period on the end of the I understand that, but you know, Keith Whittington is not uh, sliced cheese. He's a serious guy. And What's I, wrong with sliced cheese? I love sliced cheese. Well, I mean, sliced cheese generally don't get tenured appointments is what I meant. Uh, that's not been my experience. <laughs> you, should go to, you should go to college where Troy went. I, I think yeah. you know, I think it's happened. Um, I think this conversation is now sliding towards absurdity. Uh, sliding? But, we just drove 80 miles an hour into a brick wall. And so I am going to... I mean, but I do say that the horrible does not impress me. Uh, I think the incongruity and the past practice arguments are much more... More powerful, uh, but I'm glad that you raised this particular topic uh, because now at the next originalism powwow, we can get a lot of very learned people to weigh in on that particular subject. So the fly by nighters like John and myself do not have to speak any more about the topic. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, it has been a pleasure as always. Thanks to both of you. Thanks to our producer Scott Emmergut and to all of our great listeners as well as you, Bill. You know what you did. Throw us a review at iTunes. It's good for the soul. We'll be back with you in 2020. In fact, I think our next episode may be the first time that the three of us have ever sat down together in studio to do it. We've done some live ones, but never like that. All right, so that'll be coming in January. Until then, Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.